Let's start reading in verse 20, uh, finishing the preeminence of Christ. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we kind of ended right in that light last week. But, you know, we, we know that in verse 21 there that the, the condition of humanity is it's in a terrible place, right? And, and God has taken it upon himself to reconcile us to him in and through Christ. And for the purpose of, look at the end of verse 22, to present us, you, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So while the scriptures paint this hugely dark, horrible condition of mankind apart from Christ, the Bible also gives us this fabulous thing of reconciliation, right? And when we have been reconciled to Christ, we're presented as holy. Do you ever think about that? You know, Darby um, uh, recommended a book for me this week, and I started reading it, and the the author was talking. It's about Jesus, about the holiness of Christ and who he really is. and, And it just fits so well in what we've been studying with all the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ, you know, and it's, it's just, and this guy says, you know, 400 years ago, these kind of books were everywhere. Today, it's hard to find one that's focused solely on God. Why is that, you know? And, and it's because we want to, you know, it, everything's focused about us now. And so I, I've just read the introduction in the first chapter, but it's, it's really reeling my mind back in, you know, to where this text is as well. And, I mean, think about that. We have been reconciled. To God. I mean, that's huge, isn't it? That's nothing little, right? And um, we're, we're co-heirs of Christ, the promises that God has made to him, and, and, and we will remain e- eternally glorious and holy. So I wanted to read, I, I've got a devotional that I read uh, called uh, Voices, Voices of the Past. You know, these are Puritan writers, and... and um, um, this is volume two, just came out this year. And this was April the 1st, last Saturday, um, which was interesting. I think I told you last week was mine and my wife's 45th first date anniversary. <laughs> of course, she says, well, you know, it was April Fool's, so if it didn't work out, you're the fool. <laughs> but anyway, this was that day. But this just struck me with what we've been studying and the, the, I'm going to read this. The, the verse that's at the top of this is John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this day, uh, the author uh, is my favorite author, John Bunyan. And this is what Bunyan says. Christ is a person of no less quality than very God, in the very same nature as the Father. That such a person, so great, so high, so glorious, should have love for us, passes all knowledge. 
It is common for equals to love and for superiors to be loved, but for the king of princes to love man, this is amazing. Christ is called the king of glory, the Lord of glory, the brightness of the glory of his father, the head over all things, the prince of life, the creator of all things, the upholder of all things, the disposer of all things, and the only beloved of the father. Those whom he loves are called transgressors, sinners, enemies, dust and ashes, fleas, worms, shadows, vapors, vile, filthy, unclean, ungodly fools and madmen. It is, not to, is it not to be wondered at that he set his heart upon us? Our love is weak, unorderly, and it fails and miscarries. But the love of Christ is essential to his being, for God is love. Christ, love. Christ is love naturally. He may as well cease to be as to cease to love. His love does not ebb and flow or come short as our love. There is no uncertainty in his love. His love acts by and from itself. It was shown when he laid down his life for us. And the love of Christ appears wonderful in such a death that he died. It is strange, according to the custom of the world, that he who was moved to die for us, he laid down his life for his enemies. They railed on him, degraded him, and called him a devil. They said he was, a, was mad, a deceiver, a blasphemer, and a rebel. A disciple sold him, one denied him, and they all forsook him. They beat him with fists, spat upon him, mocked him, crowned him with thorns, scourged him, and hung him on a tree. Yet all this could not take his heart off the work of our redemption. To die he came, and die he did for our sins, that we might live through him. Oh, what infinite love. Isn't that awesome? And, by the way, that was an uneducated tinkerer. You know what a tinkerer is? Back then, what, you know, I mean, I tinker around a lot, don't you? But a tinkerer was a, somebody that fixed pots and pans. You know, you didn't go to Walmart and buy a new pan when you were broke. You called the tinkerer, and he made about a penny for knocking out the dents or reattaching the handle or whatever. So, obviously... He understood the love of Christ. Obviously, he understood reconciliation. And that's kind of what we were talking about last week. But So that kind of leads that in light of us being reconciled to God, we ought to do everything in our power to practically day-to-day -day live a life blameless and holy, right? Because that's who we are. We're blameless before God and holy. How, how does that make you feel? Right? I mean, that's one of those zippity-doo-dah things, isn't it? Click your heels together and skip down the street. The sky is blue or the birds are singing louder. I mean, wow, right? So what then is the evidence of reconciliation? And I think Paul gives us that if you look at verse 23. The evidence of the fact that you've been reconciled to God if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So one of the most sobering truths in the Bible is this. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian is a Christian, right? I mean, that's, the Bible teaches us that over and over again. And, and 
Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So of all the marks of genuine Christianity, there's nothing more significant than the one that Paul mentions here, right? That you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And the, the, the scriptures re, repeat this often. The, you know, the, those that are truly reconciled continue in the faith, right? I mean, you got the parable of the soils in Luke 8, uh, where it, Jesus, in, in uh, talking about the rocky soil, he says, quote, those who hear, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, in the time of temptation, fall away. And by falling away, they give evidence of what? The fact that they're not truly saved. Right? In John 8, 31, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Then there's John, speaking of the apostates in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that all are not of us. And then, of course, the most striking one to me is John 6, 66, uh, where um, after hearing some difficult and challenging teaching from Jesus, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So that gives evidence, you know, that they really weren't his disciples, right? And perseverance is is a hallmark of a true Christian. And, and, you know, I remember when I first heard that perseverance of the saints, if you will, um, you know, I, I guess I had this mindset of, um, you know, this is something within me that I got to conjure up and work up and I got to grind away at it through the years, man, this Christian thing. It's tough, man. Now, I'm not talking about that we don't sin, right? We do. I'm not talking about perfection, but it's not a works thing, is it? Because, I, you know, here I am years later. I'm still in the faith and I can promise you without a doubt, without Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I can promise you that if it were up to me to grind away at this, I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't be anywhere in church, right? Because I don't have any um, stick to itiveness in and of myself. I can't do it, right? So even when I sin, even when I fail miserably, which I do often, you know, God's love that never ceases, never fails, is not, this is a hard thing for me to grasp, God's love towards me is not contingent upon my performance for him, right? I mean, that's, that's another one of those zippity-doo-dah things, right? I mean, think about that. You know, I don't have to perform, and God used um, Jerry Bridges to teach me that. I remember in one of his books, he said, that, oh, he, he just had an awesome quiet time one morning. Oh, just fabulous, you know, time with the Lord. Praying and reading the Word, God speaking to him, him speaking to God. And then he, right before he gets ready to leave the house, he gets in a spat with his wife. And it was an ugly one. That happens, doesn't it? 
I mean, Christian, I mean, Jerry Bridges, you know, I mean, come on. Conference speaker, prolific author, um, you know, and he got in a spat with his wife. Later that day, he has the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, and he says that he felt this overwhelming worthlessness that he wasn't, he couldn't do it because of how miserably he failed that morning. And God taught him through that, that you know what? My love to you, your worth in me is not dependent upon how good you do, right? And so, I mean, that's kind of a tool of the enemy if you think about it. To Well, you're not, you, you had that spat with your wife. You can't share the gospel, right? So then there goes somebody that might have needed to hear the gospel that didn't get to hear the gospel because you see what I'm saying? So don't base your acceptance to God, your stick of the faith on your performance, right? We can't do that, which then, again, just magnifies the wow factor that God loves us anyway, in spite of all those things. That's, that's incredible. But what Paul's talking about here is the ones that, that just, they, they fall away and they never come back. Have we all seen that? We all have, right? Have you ever... I used to be a, a, a member of a larger church, and when you talk to the leadership of big churches, and I mean, we're, we're getting there, we're growing like crazy, um, the, the, I'll say it this way, like at this church, the, the, the core was a thousand people, and those thousand never changed. You know, I would say, you know, that, those were the ones that, that were steadfast that Paul's talking about here. The other 2,000 seemed like about every 18 months they were all different. What happened? Where'd they go, right? You know, there's Atlanta Marketplace is really good for employment, so they're not leaving and going to other places to work, right? But th those are the ones that really aren't steadfast in the faith. So Paul's not talking about here, too. Maybe it, it hit you like it did me the first time that I read that, if indeed you continue in the faith, you know, oh, is he talking about you lose your salvation? I mean, you know, what, what do we say about that, right? Of, of course not. You know, that's not what he's talking about because Paul also taught, you know, that somebody that is truly born again, which the best translation for that is born from above, is, is forever born. I mean, just like we're... Still, still sitting here now, you know, we were all physically born, and here we are, right? So once you've been born from above, once you've been born again, that's, that's forever. So he's not talking about that, but this is perseverance that God works in and through our lives to carry us to the end of this physical life and then ushers us into the presence of um, himself for all of eternity, for the eternal life there. But, you know, there wouldn't be any confusion, so there wouldn't be any confusion about what they were to continue in. Paul specifies the content of their faith at the end of verse 23. He, he specifies that with the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul, Paul's telling the Colossians and us that, that we are to hold fast to the gospel that we have heard the gospel that had been proclaimed throughout the world. 
the gospel of which Paul was a minister, commissioned to preach. And I think the best example of that, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the, the best example of reconciliation is in 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, starting in verse 17, 17 through 21. It says, um, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from who? From God, right? Isn't that awesome? Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's so many truths about the reconciliation in that passage, it's, it's just incredible. You know, first, you know, we see in verse 17 that, that it, when God reconciles us, it transforms us. Now, that should be great news to us, right? Because that means that the old person, in Romans 6 tells us, the old person we were in Adam, meaning before Christ, that guy's dead, gone. Or that girl, woman, is dead or gone, right? That's what he's teaching there, right? You are new Creation. What does that mean? I mean, I, you know, I didn't wake up the next morning and I was a little baby laying there starting all over. So what does that mean, a new creation? What do you think? New heart, new DNA. Yeah, new heart, new, absolutely, right? Now my desires are different, right? And, and I'm, that, that, is, that brings such hope to me because you know and then in the the uh in my job um you know dealing um counseling and working with people that with addiction problems um there's great hope in that isn't there um week before I last met with the, my wife and I met with a young lady um 20 years old and you know she's been in a few years of uh, really bad addiction and she's been sober for 60 days now praise God right but um, but she's going to AA meetings every day multiple times a day you know and I said praise God keep going don't don't stop that's what's keeping you sober right now but and she was open to this I wouldn't have said it if she wasn't but there's no hope in that. Do you understand that? And she said, yeah, I do. And I said, you know, sharing verses like this, that, you know, in Christ, you can be a new person. That drug addict can be dead, crucified, right? Gone. And, um, and you know, as we continue to minister to her and, and show her that there was hope in the gospel that's not there in... Um, in the AA meetings that she's going to. Now, she's still going to those, and she needs to continue to go to those until she fully understands and grasps this, right? But then 
That's, they, you know, they've taught her she's got a disease, a doomed disease. I don't know if you've ever been to an AA or an NA meeting, but, you know, I mean, I, you know, I was in there forever, you know, till, till I was saved because I was an addict and alcoholic and, you know, and I was miserable because I couldn't get high. So I was miserable because that's what I wanted. That's what my flesh wanted. And, but then when I understood the gospel and God saved me, I saw the hope, right? There's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what this reconciliation, this, this new person is. And, you know, that guy is gone. I don't have to listen to his barking orders anymore. And the second thing we see is, this is probably even bigger than, <laughs> if there could be anything bigger than being a new creation, is reconciliation, get this, verse 21 there in that Corinthians passage, appeases God's wrath. Whoa, right? He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So what? That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, what in the world is the righteousness of God? That's a Christian word we throw around a lot, right? The righteousness, you know, the imputed righteousness of Christ. What does that even mean? You know, my best example of that that breaks it down for me is in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when these three shining ones come to Christian he's been saved and they peel off his old clothes right and they they place these new garments on him and the new garments are the righteousness of Christ that means I mean we looked at earlier that we're, we're in Romans that we're, we're co-heirs with Christ Right? That's what that righteousness means. God took everything that Jesus has and infuses it onto us, imputes it onto us. Isn't that neat? I mean, that's another one of those zippity-doo-dah things. Somebody's going to have to sing that song for us. Um, what movie was that from? It's a cartoon, but it's a guy, you know, it's an animated thing, a little bird. What is it? Pardon? Song of the South. There you go. We'll have to record that and sing it next week. I think, I think it's recording now if you want to. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. One of y'all can sing it. We got some choir people in here that could sing it. But, uh, and then also in verse 18, we see that this reconciliation comes through Christ. And uh, then in verse 19, that it's available to everybody who believes. I mean, that is awesome. This isn't some exclusive club. Right? It's available to everyone that believes. And um, then, finally, we see in that passage, in this rec talking about this thing of reconciliation, that all of us then that have been reconciled have been given a ministry of reconciliation. We're now ambassadors, and we are the ones that are supposed to be proclaiming that reconciliation to the world as God sends us um, out apart for that purpose, right? I mean, that is the only logical reason that any of us are still here as Christians because why would we not just be with God to worship Him forever? Because He's got a job for us to do and that is to be ambassadors to, um, to the people that He has still to bring into the family that are here on earth and that's mine and yours responsibility. So, now let's look at uh, verses 24 to 29 back in Colossians 1. This is just bizarre too when you think about it. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So after introducing this succession of the supremacy of Christ in creation, then in the church, and then in reconciliation, Paul now shows us how supremely magnificent this perspective of ministry is. Here we are, we, we understood all of this, and now we're ready to launch into ministry. But first, look at Paul's attitude in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now the word now probably refers to that moment. There he was, Epaphras is there, and he's in jail, Paul's in jail. And, and right now, what's true of him being locked up is that he's not making his missionary journeys. He's not able to minister face-to-face -face with the Colossians. Now, he hopes to do that later. We see that in Philemon. But instead, he's enduring many details of suffering hardship. Note the plural, my sufferings, right? You know, pertaining to his present imprisonment. But what's striking about that? He's rejoicing in suffering, right? He's not complaining. Boy, I complain all the time, do y'all? You know, I mean, and I'm not in prison. I'm not in jail for preaching the gospel, but I gripe and I complain. You know, so from a secularist perspective, this, this would be totally incomprehensible, right? Why would anybody in their right mind rejoice for the fact that they're suffering? But Paul shows us this in, in Romans chapter 5. He, he speaks of exulting in tribulation. Peter shows us that in 1 Peter 4 where he says to suffer and, you know the next word? Rejoice. Really? You know, and then in Acts 5, Luke tells the, the apostles uh, rejoicing that they'd been counted, or Paul rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer. And Paul too rejoiced. But why? Why in the world would anybody rejoice? And Paul says that first his suffering brought good to the church. Well, you know, I mean, if, if I'm honest with y'all, and I've got to suffer... Good for the church? Really? Um, you know what? i got to think about me. You know, the heck with y'all, no offense or anything. But, you know, but that's not Paul's mindset, right? He's suffering for the church because he, he knew, this was really neat, he, that without his willingness to suffer, there would be no church in Asia. Whoa, right? Look at um, 2 Corinthians 11. He was willing to suffer for the church in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, 
Uh, let's see. Like, let's start in, in verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I, will, I too will boast, for you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are, are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robber, robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. You know, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall? Right? I mean, suffering for the churches. The gospel has always spread through missionary hardship. Right? Missionary hardship. But there's something more there, I think. Believers grow through their personal suffering and the good they receive flows to others and edifies the church through that. Now, you know, I was thinking of that is that how that builds up the church. John Newton, you know, the author of Amazing Grace, he wrote this. God appoints his ministers to be sorely exercised, both from without and within, that they may sympathize with their flock and know in their own hearts the deceitfulness of sin, the infirmities of the flesh, and the way in which the Lord supports and bears all who trust in him. So really, you could you know, sum that up and say that God's servants benefit, or when God's servants benefit, the whole church benefits, right? And that causes Paul to rejoice. Um, you know, then we see that Paul describes his sufferings as in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, you're probably thinking just like me, what in the world? How could I... You know, it was what Jesus did not sufficient for the atonement. And um, this is one of the most debated verses in all of the Bible. All right. Scholars have been going back and forth for 2000 years about this. What we do know without a question is that Paul did not uh, make up some lacking in Jesus's atonement for us. Right. The whole of Colossians teaches us, and well, really the whole New Testament teaches that there is complete sufficiency in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on mankind's behalf, right? 
Paul didn't help with the atonement. That was solely done by Christ. But one thing that the phrase does teach for sure, and all of the scholars agree upon this, is that a close identification develops between Christ and the church when the church suffers. Okay, does that make sense? I mean, think of Paul's encounter on the Damascus Road with Christ himself. Paul had been making, what was he doing? He was making the people of Christ, the church, suffer, right? He was persecuting them, therefore they were suffering. Christ, and Jesus' first words to Paul were clear. What did he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's right, right? So Paul was persecuting the church. Jesus was being persecuted through the people. And immediately after that, after, I mean, I'm sorry, immediately after his conversion in Acts 9.16, it says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. So he was persecuting the church, causing suffering in the church, and now Jesus says, okay, well, he's going to suffer for my name, right? Paul would suffer and Christ would suffer in Paul. I mean, that's an astonishing thought, right? So how then did Paul fill up what was still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction? Well, this isn't a cop-out, but nobody knows for sure, <laughs> right? I mean, there's just Many of the top scholars of today believe this. Paul's words have reference to the common Jewish understanding that the Messianic age was to be preceded by a definite amount of suffering of Christians. So the sufferings are the sufferings of God's people, but they are ultimately Christ's sufferings because of his identity with his people. Does that make sense? You know, so really it, it's it's kind of like, well, maybe I ought to go out and see if I can suffer for Christ because really what he's saying is that this is going to usher in the Messianic age. And shouldn't we want that to come? I sure do, right? I mean, when you look at the things that happened just this week, you know, those, that gas, uh, nerve gas thing in Syria, I mean, that was horrible, right? I, that's, I don't, in times like that, I don't like technology because I don't like seeing babies, you know, suffering like that, you know. So, man, let's bring, let's bring Christ, you know, please come, right? And what can I do to hasten that? And so if this is the correct interpretation, then Paul was rejoicing because his sufferings, which are Christ's sufferings also, were bringing the... Uh, the end of this age closer. That's, I guess that's the way to say it, right? He, it was kind of like the experience that um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had in the furnace, right? Who was in the furnace with them? They were suffering. Who was there? You know, the Lord, Jesus. He was there, right? And that's why Paul could pray from a Roman jail in Philippians 3.10. It says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul knew suffering was, was miserable, but the resulting sense of the union with Christ is wonderful. right? That, so those go together there. So now moving ahead, he shows us 
kind of the ministerial charge, if you will, in verse 25. It says, of, you know, talking about that uh, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Um, so he's talking about preaching. I mean, that's the bottom line here, to make the word of God fully known. That literally reads that I might complete the word of God. The idea is to lay out the word of God fully in front of the people. What do we call that today? Somebody said it. What kind of preaching? Expository, Expository preaching. Fully lay it out, right, for the people. Open the word of God. You know, if you ever move away or decide you want to go to another church, you know, if, if the preacher is not opening the word of God and laying it out in front of you, then pack up and go find somewhere where they are doing that. This, this, specif you know, this is preaching what God is saying in his word. And the, the specifics of that preaching are given in verses 26 and 27. Look at those. And there's no shortcut in this, by the way, but it says the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's preaching set forth a mystery, right? You ever wonder about that? Namely, that in some way, God's saving purpose was extended to the Gentiles. Now, that's, that's a revolutionary thought to the times there, right? From, from an ancient Jewish perspective, that seemed absolutely impossible, right? Because they had great disdain for the Gentiles. So that made it a mystery, right? So the, the prophesied reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles was a true mystery, and Jesus came in the middle of all that, broke it down, and the Jews and the Gentiles together became a new person, which then brought peace. And that's what everybody, look at, uh, well, I'll just read this. Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6 says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jews and Gentiles sitting down at the same table, counting themselves one in Christ. That is a miracle, right? This had to come about only because of what the end of verse 27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the indwelling of Christ is what makes this reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles possible. We've been reconciled in Christ, now filled with Christ, which makes uh, them be able to come together. And that's, that's a miracle, right? This happened in Colossae, and guess what? It can happen today. You know, one of the greatest glories of the gospel is it brings different people together, right? Th this is racial reconciliation, 101, right? And, and there, there should be no divide among races of people. Um, or, for me, the bigger one, uh, maybe not bigger, but equal, is, is, uh, is age reconciliation, right? I mean, I've got plenty of friends that are... Well, John Michael's a great friend of mine. 
You know, how old are you? 24. 24. I'll be 64 in August. 40 years. When I was 24 and, and the rank pagan that I was to hang out with a 64-year-old man, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, that old dude, I probably wouldn't have said dude, but right? I mean, think about that. But now in Christ, that's all gone. You know, that there's no barriers there. And, and I remember when I first, and I probably shared this with you guys before, but when I first saw that, shortly after being saved, the lady that prayed for my wife and I for four years didn't know it. She told us afterward, uh, was a secretary where I worked, and she invited us over for dinner one night. And I was 38 then, and, and she was probably 60. And um, we had a great time. You know, and on the way home, I thought, could you believe that we were hanging out with 60-year-olds? You know? <laughs> And, uh, boy, you know, that's a mystery, right? That's a, the, the mysteries of the gospel, that that goes away. But even, even in, in race or, or even different, we could even be the same race, but from different countries, right? And, and, and that, that's all what God has done. And, and there's a purpose for that, right? And the purpose is in verse 28 for ministry, Look what he says in verse 20, 28. Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So you see he says everyone three times. And, and he's, he, Paul's goal is to have mature Christians. And I think that should be any church leader's goal is to have mature Christians, Christians right? Because then that person can then go out and do the call of the gospel on their lives. So he, he says here that the first thing is he proclaimed Christ. Christ was the beginning and the end of his message. And, you know, that's, that's evangelism 101, but Paul didn't leave people there, and that's the problem with most evangelism today is they proclaim Christ and that's it, right? Listen, George Whitfield, the great preacher of old years, said, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Isn't that good? Because he was just preaching the, the good news of Christ, right? So when preaching, uh, when the preaching of Christ brought converts, Paul then moves into admonishing them. He doesn't just leave them sitting there, right? He admonishes them. And that is where we get the word nutheo, the Greek word is nutheo, where we get nuthetic counseling, which, you know, is biblical counseling. It's the counseling that we as a church do here. It's the organization that we back and some of us are certified in, it's now called ACBC, but it used to be called NANC, N-A-N-C, National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. That, that's that word, that word warning, admonishing, I think is what the New American Standard says. And then Paul says, teaching everyone. So three, everyone three times there, right? Admonishing but proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching. So that, that's how we should be looking at life each and every day. Now, when I look at Paul's life, I'm greatly convicted. Look what he says in verse 29 there. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You know, we can't have an authentic ministry without hard work and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. But this language is very tough. The word toil that he uses there 
was a Greek word that, that was used for work that left someone so weary, it was the, the, that as if the person had taken a beating. Now, you younger folks maybe haven't worked like that, but when you get my age and you just go cut the grass, <laughs> that's what you feel like at the end of the day. Who whipped me? All I did was cut the grass, right? Um, but then he goes to another word, struggling. And that's stronger than hard labor. It uh, is a word, a Greek word, that we get our English word agony from. So it's, it's kind of like agonizing in an athletic event or in a fight. So th those words that describe Paul's ministry take tremendous energy. And of course, that energy he was getting was coming from God. But Paul strained every physical and moral muscle of his body to complete his ministry. Martin Luther, it said, was like this. It was said of him that he worked so hard that many days, according to his biographers, he just walked into the bedroom and fell in the bed. Out. D.L. Moody, bedtime prayer on occasion, as he rolled his bulk into the bed, was, Lord, I'm tired, amen. <laughs> That's a good one, right? John Wesley rode, get this now, Atlanta traffic. Wesley rode 60 to 70 miles many days of his life and preached an average of three sermons a day, even after riding like that. Alexander McLaren, a preacher of the 1800s, would get to his office when the workmen would go to work so he could hear their boots outside of his office and, wouldn't put, and would put on workmen's boots as he worked in his study. G. Campbell Morgan uh, kept a newspaper clipping for 20 years entitled Sheer Hard Work. Right, So for sure, Paul's ministerial drive, it, it's a model for all of us. Um, you know, we'll never have an authentic ministry unless we're willing to put that kind of work into it. R.C. Sproul says, The ministry of the gospel is a glorious thing, but we do not have to be an apostle or, or a reformer or a preacher to do it. What we need is the hard work, right? And the, the enabling of the Holy Spirit. One last thing here, listen to this. This is a perfect example of that. Some years ago, a woman in Africa became a Christian. Being filled with gratitude, she decided to do something for Christ. She was blind, uneducated, and 70 years of age. She came to her missionary with her French Bible and asked her to underline John 3.16 in red ink. Mystified, the missionary watched her as she took her Bible and sat in front of a boy's school in the afternoon. When school dismissed, she would call a boy or two and ask them if they knew French. When they proudly responded that they did, she would say, please read the passage underlined in red. When they did, she would ask, do you know what that, this means? And she would tell them about Christ. This missionary says that over the years, 24 young men became pastors due to her work. You know, she did all she could do there, right? And that's, what a great call for us. You know, so I'm sure that the Lord has somebody in your life that you can suffer for and, and you know, just proclaim the gospel to them. So we'll move into chapter two in two weeks as we have no study next week. And, uh, See you at one o'clock at the Smith's house. Does anybody have anything to follow up with? Oh, I 
as you park, park in a driveway, we won't have two lanes coming into our driveway, so pull up as far as you can, allow you enough room to get through. Okay. All right.